Hi everyone, a quick warning before we get started on this podcast. We're going to be spoiling Hercule Poirot's Christmas immediately from the beginning, so consider yourselves warned. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, "'murder was waiting, ready to pounce. "'Simeon Lee was lying dead in his room, "'while Sugden was slowly inflating a balloon. "'He pulled on the string, and there came a great cry. "'Furniture scattered, the room was awry. "'The Lees, they came running, and bashed down the door "'to find Simeon bleeding and dead on the floor. "'Sugden cried out, Vengeance is mine. Simeon Lee will pay for his crime. But Poirot was waiting, a smile on his face, with his little grey cells to help solve the case. Thank you for that lovely poem, Bridget, uh, from thine own pen. Yes, thank you. So, um, shall we start? Yes. Great. So, hello and Merry Christmas, listeners. Merry Christmas. This is the Crime Fiction Casebook Podcast. Yes. A podcast exploring stories of murder, mystery and suspense. Yes. As always, back with a lovely festive edition. Um, so I'm Bridget and I'm here today with my co-host James. Hello. Um, yeah, so it's it's Christmas. It is Christmas. Well, it's not quite Christmas Day yet, but it's, it's in the lead up to Christmas. And Are you feeling festive? Yes. Tis the season to be criminal to be a murderer yeah um so i'm feeling really cozy can you describe the atmosphere in the room to the listeners Um, well uh it's an unseasonably warm day so that's a marked improvement we did have Um, snow though until today yeah we've got christmas decorations i was wearing a christmas hat until i put on my headphones um and you were wearing earpiece things dearly boppers yeah uh we had christmas music on um, I've had a mince pie. Yeah, you've had your first mince pie of the year. Yeah. I haven't had one yet today. Today. Um, and we've got a lovely Christmas tree in the corner and it's twinkling and sparkling. Lovely. Yeah, and I'm drinking a Christmas coffee. Me too. Good. Yeah. In fact, it's my Manchester Christmas market mug. Yeah. Yeah, so everything is very Christmassy and we want this to be the cosiest episode that we've ever done. <laughs> okay. That's the aim of today. Right. So we've had poetry, we've had coffees and mince pies, so now we're going to start with a little introduction to the story we're looking at today. Yes. Which, unless you haven't guessed already, is Hercule Poirot's Christmas. Yeah, if you, like, close your eyes when you download the podcast so you don't see the title. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so um, here's a little synopsis of the plot of this fantastic Christmas mystery. In the run-up to Christmas, the sons of Simeon Lee, a rich, tyrannical businessman, gather at Gorston Hall. 
First, there's Alfred, Simeon Lee's faithful son, who has stayed by his side all of his life. Then there's David, an emotionally unstable artist who resents his father and blames him for his mother's death. Then there's the bitter, pompous George, a member of parliament who relies on his father's wealth to fund his political career. Then finally, Harry Lee arrives unexpectedly at the door. Harry is the prodigal son, a petty criminal and playboy who has often relied on his father's money to get him out of scrapes. But the Lee sons and their wives are even more surprised when two strangers arrive at Gorston Hall. The first is the beautiful, mysterious Pilar Estravados, the half-Spanish daughter of Simeon's only daughter, Jennifer, who recently died. The second stranger is Stephen Farr, the South African son of Simeon Lee's business partner, Ebenezer Farr, with whom Simeon built up his diamond mining business and made his fortune. On the afternoon of Christmas Eve, Simeon Lee summons all of the guests to his room. As they arrive, they overhear him on the telephone to his solicitor, arranging an urgent appointment to change his will. Then, one by one, he berates and humiliates each of his sons, expressing his disappointment in them. Shocked and shaken by Simeon's bullying, the Lee family go about their business for the rest of the day. Then, as the evening draws in, they suddenly hear the sound of a violent struggle in Mr Lee's room, followed by a piercing, harrowing scream. Frantically, the family rush upstairs to find that Simeon's room is locked. Once the door has been broken in, they enter the room to find a scene of chaos. Furniture has been overturned and Mr Lee's belongings are scattered all about. Simeon Lee is lying in a pool of blood, having had his throat cut. Hercule Poirot, who is staying in a nearby village, is called upon by the local police to help them deal with the murder. After all, Simeon Lee was a high-profile individual and his brutal murder must be investigated thoroughly. Poirot joins Colonel Johnson and Superintendent Sugden to help solve the crime. Soon, details emerge which shed new light on Simeon Lee's activities on the day of his death. It turns out that Superintendent Sugden had been summoned to Gorston Hall by Simeon Lee earlier on Christmas Eve in order to discuss the possible theft of Simeon Lee's precious diamonds. After finding that Simeon's diamonds were indeed stolen on the night of the murder, the police begin to suspect that the two crimes are linked. It will take Poirot and his little grey cells to solve this complex crime and bring the killer to justice. <coughs> so, uh, that's the synopsis of this amazing story. Um, mm -hmm. So, I guess that um, I should explain how this is done and what, what happens. Yes, tell in us what happened, Bridget. Okay. In this long and complex... Christmassy tale. <laughs> right, so Sugden, it turns out, did the crime. So that's the police superintendent who Poirot and Colonel Johnson work with on the mm -hmm, case. Mm -hmm. <gasps> Shock horror. Yeah, twist, so twist alert. Twist alert. So it turns out that Inspector St um, Superintendent Sugden is the illegitimate son of Simeon Lee. Um, so it turns out everyone is the illegitimate son of Simeon <laughs> Shh, Lee. That's the other twist. Um, <laughs> He's the illegitimate son of Simeon Lee, uh, with like a local woman just in the town nearby, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and he hates and resents Simeon Lee for like jilting and abandoning his brother. Yeah. Um, so he hatches a plan to get his revenge, which of course is aided by the fact that he's a police officer. So, you know, he has lots of ways yes. he could do that. Conceal evidence. Yeah. 
Um, so on the day of the murder, which I think is Christmas Eve, yes, he calls Simeon Lee and tells him that he's about to come. That that Simeon Lee is about to have his diamonds stolen. So he tells Simeon Lee he's about to have his diamonds stolen, and then he arranges to come round and meet Simeon. So he comes round in his capacity as a police officer um, to see Simeon Lee, and he, but he tells everyone else in the house, so the servants and everyone, that he's actually collecting for a charity on Christmas Eve. He doesn't tell them about the diamonds. Mm-hmm. He goes up to Simeon Lee's room, and then he kills him by cutting his throat. Um, and then Sugden steals the diamonds to create the impression that the crime is part of a theft and to generally confuse matters. Mm-hmm. Right, okay, so... This is where it gets a bit silly, okay? He piles the furniture and the ornaments in the room into a big tower in the middle of the room and ties a piece of string around the bottom of this tower. He then feeds the string through the window, which is open a crack, so that he can then pull on the string later, thus dislodging the tower. At the bottom of the tower... He secures a dying pig with a peg to plug it. So a dying pig is an old-fashioned toy, which is like a balloon that you inflate, and as it deflates, it screams um, because of the way that the air comes out of the hole. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, so it's a bit like a whoopee cushion or a balloon. Yeah. He brings with him animal blood mixed with sodium citrate to keep the blood around the room fresh and sprinkles this around the scene. Um, he then leaves and turns the key in the lock from the outside using pliers or something. Yeah. <clears throat> he then leaves pliers. He leaves through the main entrance and says goodbye to everyone so that everyone sees him leaving, which means that he won't be considered a suspect when the crime is later staged. The scene is set. Sugden leaves and goes to the window from the outside of the house. But he leaves and hangs around a bit. Yeah, okay. He Sugden waits. leaves and waits a bit. Okay. Then he goes to the window from the outside. He pulls on the cord and the tower comes crashing down inside the room. The dying pig is released, letting out a terrible, inhuman scream, which will later be described as like a soul in hell. The family rushes to Simeon Lee's room, sensing that there's been a struggle in the room. They break down the door, only to find that Simeon Lee has been brutally murdered amongst a chaotic jumble of his own furniture and ornaments. Sugden returns to the house on the pretext that Simeon Lee asked him to return an hour after their first meeting. The inhabitants of Gorston Hall are reeling after the discovery of the body, and Sugden jumps into action as the first police officer on the scene. Little do the family know that he is investigating his own crime. Wow. Wow. What a tale. That's a shocker. In my opinion, it's a contender for one of the silliest Agatha Christie's. Possibly, I think it might be the silliest one I've ever read. Yeah, yeah I'm not saying silly bad. I mean, like, it's the, the most implausible one. Yeah, we appreciate it. For we its love silliness. it because it's silly. Mm-hmm. It's the best thing about it. So, um, context is going to be pretty short with this one. It's, uh, it was it's about Christmas. It's about Christmas. Which, if you haven't heard about it, is to do with the birth of Christ. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a big celebration. It was released in... It was published in 1938. Um, to very good reviews, by all accounts. Yeah, good. Well, I, I would certainly give it yeah, a good Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the setting of this one is obviously really important. It's yeah. a really festive Christmassy setting. So it's a country house murder. A traditional country house murder with the family all around. Yeah. Um, 
which is obviously like perfect for Christmas. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, and I get the sense that they've got all the decorations up in the house and a tree and everything. Yeah, Simeon Lee is planning a big family get-together for Christmas. Yeah. Much to most people's chagrin, but, Mm. you know. And Pilar, the Spanish guest, half-Spanish granddaughter of Simeon Lee, Mm -hmm. is really excited to have an English Christmas, isn't she? Yeah. Because she wants to see uh, fruit and burning raisins. Yes, yeah, I think really there's excited. also the added benefit of escaping the Spanish Civil War. And that, too. And also potentially getting a lot of money in inheritance. Yes. <laughs> but um, she's excited about burning raisins. She keeps talking about this. Yeah. Yeah, don't know, not, I don't know what that is. Not something we do these days. Yeah, it sounds good, though. It sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, and, and interestingly, in terms of <clears> setting, <throat> this one, this Christmas country house, turns into a booby trap house later in the book. Yes, it does. A yes. kind of scary booby trap that I don't even know how you'd pull off, but... Scares around every corner. Yeah, someone sucked and puts a cannonball on top of one of the door frame, door handles. <laughs> Where's the cannonball gone? Yeah, so it comes kind of a Scooby-Doo house, I think, mm. towards the end. But yeah, it's very gothic. Lots of statues and ornaments mm-hmm. lying around. Yes. Um, and we have today a great cast of very shady, and very unpleasant characters. I actually think... It's not the most unpleasant cast of characters. No, okay. Most of but them are actually are quite bit, friendly. They are a bit of a nightmare family, I think. <clears throat> oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, you wouldn't want to be part of a Lee family. No, except for the fact that you do stand to inherit a lot of money. You do, yeah. So should we talk about the characters first? Uh, yes, yeah, let's, let's do so that. So let's talk about our favourite first of all. Let's talk about Hercule Poirot. Yeah. This is kind of like, I think sort of Poirot is starting to become a bit more subdued at this point. I don't know. <laughs> he's not quite as silly as he is in some of the earlier ones. No, he's in not in episode, it for the banter. In this um, episode, in this um, book. But he's not really aided and abetted by any of his mates. He's on his own, isn't he? He's on but his own, yeah. The, the person who knows the best is um, Colonel, Colonel Johnson, Johnson, and yeah. I, I don't think they're particularly close, necessarily. And we don't really get much of Colonel Johnson, do we? No. He likes fire. Amount. He likes a good wood fire, though, doesn't he? Does. He does. So I think we should talk about Simeon Lee, because he's obviously a crucial character in this one. The central figure. So I put that he's a Christmas miser, but then you said he's not really a miser. I don't think he's a miser. He's described as being quite generous. Yeah, um, he is actually. open-handed. Yeah, he throws his money about quite a lot. He likes giving money out to people. None of his children want for money. He's really mean and nasty and manipulative and stuff. Yes, yes, he's certainly, you get, he's someone who was very sort of um, uh, active and powerful uh, in his youth, and now he's become old and frail, he's sort of resorting to psychological means and manipulative means to get one over on people. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, he's bored, so he (laughs) makes conflict in the family, it's not very nice. Um, But he's described repeatedly as a sinner. Well, he certainly is a sinner. He's going to pay for his crimes. He's an adulterer. He's an adulterer, yes, that's crucial. Yeah, I don't think enough was made of that in the uh, TV adaptation, yeah. actually. Um, and a slightly dodgy businessman. Although, yeah. it's kind of implied that he is just sort of a very successful and maybe slightly ruthless businessman. Yeah, I don't think it's implied I think it's more in really dodgy his anything. personal life that he's sort of quite unpleasant to people. Yeah, um, he has some uncut diamonds that he keeps in a safe in his room and yes. he likes, like stroking them and looking yeah, at them. Yeah, his first ever diamonds. Yeah. But he didn't actually make 
the vast majority of his wealth in the diamond mine, didn't he? No, he that made it. That sort of it. kicked him off. Apparently and then he... he made it because he designed some kind of machine to yeah, use in the mine. Machine. Yeah, He must yeah. be an engineer or something. Well, I think he did a bit of mining and had some bright ideas whilst he was at it. Yeah. Um, but a crucial thing about it... So they keep calling him a sinner and saying that he's, you know, he's going to pay for his crimes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um... And the crucial thing about him is that he has... He keeps bragging about how he's got loads of illegitimate sons. Yeah. This is something he yeah. has a bit of a thing about. I mean, it's true. He's very crass. <laughs> he's awful, That's certainly yeah. true. Yeah. Um, and he does this wonderful will-changing thing where he gets the will out. Uh, no, he doesn't just get the will out, but he, like, phones up the solicitor while they're coming into the... All the sons are coming into the room and has, like, a loud conversation about <laughs> how he's going to change his will. Yeah. Um, here's a question for you. Do you think he actually phones the solicitor then, or do you think he just picks up the receiver and talks into it? I don't know. Is it explained in the novel? Oh, I don't think it really matters. The whole thing is just done for a show in front of the Yeah, anyway. I think either way... I think he was going to change it, probably, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, so I think maybe he was talking to the solicitor. Okay, okay. But um, maybe he wasn't. I, yeah, I think he intends to change it, though. Because he yes. knows about Pilar now. And, and Harry comes back as well. And Harry comes back, and he's decided he's going to let Harry back in. Although Harry turns out to have been in the original will, so... Yes, yes, he does. I expect he has to change it because he's found out Pilar exists and she's come back and he wants to make sure she's not disinherited. Mm. It's very hubristic, this moment. Yeah, it's funny. He says, I won't be dying just yet, (laughs) then dies about an hour later. (laughs) (laughs) So he has this scene where he, like, berates his sons just after this. It's funny. Yeah. He's so mean to them. He's like, goes one by one and he's like, you're useless. You've given me no grandchildren. Yeah, there's no grandchildren except for Pilar. There's no, like, male heir. Yeah. So he's very annoyed with them. He is, certainly is annoyed. And he's also very rude about their mother. Oh, yeah, he had this wife, their mother, <laughs> his wife, his, mm-hmm. his wife who's died. Um, he's very mean about her. So she was stupid. Yeah, because um, he had lots of affairs and didn't care about her feelings and stuff. Yeah. So not a very nice guy, really. No. So, next we come to our villain. A very sneaky villain. Yeah. In the uh, original text, he is only from one county over from where Simeon Lee lives. Yeah. Um, which implies that he hasn't dedicated his whole life to murdering Simeon Lee. But he must have put in quite a lot of thought. And the plan yeah. he comes up with... It's rubbish. You, you, it's so intricate and over the top. He's a policeman... You'd think he could have come up with a neat way of doing it. Also yeah. a bit weird to murder such an old man who is probably going to die relatively soon anyway. I Yeah, I don't really understand his motive because... <clears throat> I mean, his why? mother was well provided yeah. for. Um, <laughs> why would you do it now? After yeah, like, how old is something like 40 or something? Yeah, he's like, well into why? adulthood. Seems unlikely. I can understand him having a, a lot of... Uh, hatred for his dad but i think so murdering we, him is a bit over yeah, the when he's really old and frail i don't like, don't condone point. the murder um and and <clears throat> i don't the, the, there's this key problem with our discussion today well i don't know maybe it's not a problem maybe it's a good thing um this this is that we both knew what was going to happen when we read it so um when we read the actual agatha christie main text we both knew the, who the murderer was and what the twist was and everything because we've watched we the watched TV this one show a couple of years ago. Yeah, we watched it, and it's it extremely memorable. <laughs> in the lockdown, it's very memorable, and um, 
it's very silly. So we knew it was going to happen. So we weren't able to do any, like, to get any insight into whether it's guessable. I mean, I had forgotten every single other character in this other than uh, yeah. Sugden. I could just remember that Sugden did it and the whoopee cushion, well, the dying pig and the tower <laughs> of furniture. The whoopee cushion. And I could also remember what the guy looked like because of when I watched Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, I was like, oh, that's uh, the guy from Hercule Poirot's Christmas. <laughs> Who does he play in that? Uh, he plays uh, the butler at the Nazi castle who Indiana Jones pretends to be a Scottish laird to oh, right. and then immediately punches. Oh, right. So I don't know, that there's some pretty hefty signposting about him that is really obvious if you know he did it, but it might not be that obvious if you don't know. Firstly, he's like a really big presence for a police officer. True, true. But I don't think he not is... Not excessively, though. I, I, he's not in the book as much as, for example... Um, the guy in Murder on the Links. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, the one who's constantly disguising yeah. himself as a bush. Oh, the bush guy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one's like the second silliest, maybe. Yeah, maybe. He, he is very present for, you know, just he, your, um, he has, your local um, Bobby. Yeah, also he um, he's a lot more serious than normal police officers. Yeah, he's not as much of a joke as they often are. Yeah, he... Um, He's more serious, like, they, he doesn't he doesn't laugh and joke as much as they no, usually do. No, Colonel Johnson is the one that's going around saying, Puh, not sure what I can make of this, eh, Poirot? <laughs> he does um, have a nice moment, I think, in this, where uh, he picks up some evidence from Pilar yeah. uh, in the room, which is a fragment of rubber from the dying pig and the peg. And um, he then sort of messes around with this evidence. He, he changes the bit of rubber to another bit to cover his tracks, but eventually he ends up giving it to Poirot, who wants to have a look at it. And he says, if you can make head or tail of this, I'll resign from the force. <laughs> Does he like, say that in the novel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Maybe not verbatim, but yeah. um, he said words to that effect. And it's like, yeah, yeah you will. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, he has... So it's signposted that he's, like, very similar to that to the Lees, Um like, he throws back his head and laughs, and they all do this. Yeah, they're all constantly stroking their jaw in this. Oh, right. See, I, I remember that, the denouement. They talk about it, and I'm like, oh, I didn't notice that. I, I did notice that. I, <laughs> I couldn't... I wasn't noticing that it was certain characters doing it. I was just like, there's so much jaw stroking in this novel. Yeah. There's also lots of talk of moustaches. Yes, there is, Stephen which Farr's is good. got a moustache. Yeah. has got a moustache. Poirot talks about their moustaches. Um... Pilar also is a bit where Pilar, like, points at... Pilar fancies everyone. She fancies everyone for some reason. But there's a bit where they're interviewing her and she says that she thought that Simeon Lee would have looked, when he was young, would have looked very attractive, a bit like you, and points at mm. Sugden. And um, that obviously um, rattles him quite a lot. Yes, it certainly does. He doesn't find it as complimentary as he he's says, supposed to. it's cannonball time. <laughs> He's like... Now to plan my second perfect murder. How on earth does she survive that? Well, in the book it misses her, but in the adaptation it hits her, and I guess it's just a glancing blow. So we we watched the TV show. We've read it within the past month, and Mm. we watched the TV show a few days ago. A couple of days ago, yeah. And he just hides in the corridor. Oh, yeah, he just whacks her with a And, like, whacks her over the head with, With like, a a stick or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I forgot. Okay. They obviously thought that the cannonball wouldn't film well. Well, it wouldn't. Do you not know, do you know remember how she avoids it? She Her dress gets caught on a nail. 
And then she can't go into the room. It's very... It's the luckiest thing ever. Um, Yeah, so... um, I don't know. When when Pilar says that to to Sugden, there's a bit afterwards where he throws back his head and laughs and Poirot, like, turns white. And then um, Sugden says, Poirot, have you seen a ghost? (laughs) Um, You look like you've seen a ghost. And Poirot goes, I think I just did. Or something, which is yeah. one of my favorite mystery tropes. Like I, I really like it. Just happens a lot in books that people say, "You look like you've seen a ghost." Yeah, and I, I like that. It's a fun trope. We should do a quick rundown of all of the Lee family because there's a lot of them. Yeah, and how much we hate them. We don't hate them. I dislike most of them. Some of them are better than others. Some of them are. So Alfred Lee, he's like the son who stayed at home. Yeah, he's, he's the a good, the good son. You know. He's devoted to his father. He's very devoted to Simeon Lee. Um, he's kind of stolid and, like, boring, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, he's rubbish. And he's rubbish. Simeon hates him because he's just, Yeah, like, Simeon um, Lee would hate that. You know. Simeon Lee he likes the sparring partner, Yeah, he? he doesn't he respect like, people that are overly deferential. He likes people to have a bit of uh, gumption, doesn't he? Yes, yeah. which Alfred does not have. Yeah, but Alfred is, like, generally quite a good guy, I think. He doesn't do yeah, anything bad. Yeah, he's not. He, yeah, he, you're right. He doesn't do anything bad. So Lydia, although apparently he's capable of murder, got to yes, note that he's down capable, against him. Poirot says he's capable of murder. We'll talk about that. His wife is called Lydia. Yes. Lydia is. Um, she's quite sort of likes attractive her. and elegant, isn't she? Yeah, she seems like she's got a just something about her that people like. She's confident. She's sensible. She's responsible. She's good company. Yeah. She opens the book by talking to Alfred and saying, I hate your father, Alfred. Yeah. I have been storing this up for 20 years. Yeah, and I it's have very to dramatic. finally say, I hate your father. Yeah. Um, I don't know what else we can say about her. Like, she, yeah, she, she has she, a uh, hobby. She wears dresses that look like curtains. Yeah, and she, <laughs> she, her hobby is making miniature gardens, which yes. is quite cute. Yes, they, sound, they do sound quite nice, those. They do. They sound like the kind of thing I would enjoy doing. They are themed gardens. Yes. Like, she yes, makes one that's like the Dead <clears throat> Sea, and then there's one that's like... The Japanese garden. The Japanese garden. It's very cool. Like, it's a cool yeah, hobby yeah. to have. Yeah. I guess they're a bit like a terrarium, but they're not covered. Yes. Yeah, but I mean, they have, they're, they're plant pots, aren't they? With like stuff growing in them. Yeah, but um, just little things that you keep pruned, aren't they? Yeah, it's very cute. I guess it's a bit like bonsais and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right, I actually quite like George Lee. I like George Lee. George Lee's a fun character. He's like a classic Agatha Christie character. Yeah, he's the pompous MP. There's a few um, pompous every, MPs. Yeah, one everyone always hates them. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, George Lee, he is a miser. He's a he's a funny miser. Yeah. yeah, and weirdly they all talk about like how he hated parting with money and loved collecting money, like even as a small child. Oh, really, I can't yes. remember that. Uh, but when he's introduced, uh, one of the first things he says is, <laughs> "If we go to father's, oh, we yeah. could save on Christmas <laughs> on the cost of Christmas." <laughs> to be fair, though, he's like, people do you do think that. we could give the do you think we could give the servants beef instead of turkey? It uh, would be much yeah. cheaper. Which seems unlike. I, surely turkey would be cheaper than beef, but you know. But yeah, he's quite funny about that. He also starts this book with an expositional chat with his wife. Um, Does he? Yeah, I can't he's saying that. again after thirty years of marriage, Magdalene. It's time for me to finally tell you I have another brother. Yes. I'll just quickly name and describe all my brothers to you, and then I'll talk about my other brother, <laughs> my <laughs> who I've never brother. told you about. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, it's weird. Because they've sort of disowned Harry because he's such a mess. Yeah. He's such a mess. Like, such he, an embarrassment. Yeah, I don't know what really he does, but he's just I think like, there's like one quite major incident that is to do what with... Is it? I, it's he not got really put in jail, didn't yeah, he? In he's a foreign been, country. He's been jailed, yeah. Yeah. So he goes around the world being a playboy and like throwing mm. his money away and getting mm-hmm. to go into prison and stuff. Yeah. So anyway, George is absolutely awful. He's he's like, funny and he's also useless. Quite a use. We'll talk about his alibi later. His <laughs> alibi is one of my favorite alibis ever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he, he's your quintessential <laughs> pompous MP, and he's he is married to Magdalene Lee. Magdalena? Is it Magdalene? Magdalene. I think. I thought it was Magdalene, but then I think on the TV they called her Magdalena, didn't they? I don't. I, don't I literally know. don't know. I can't remember. Who is a young and sexy wife? She's beautiful, so they yes. say. She's had a previous love affair with she's a military man. She's also profligate Who with she her pretended money. was her father. Oh, right. Yeah, I've forgotten about that. Yeah. I've totally forgotten that storyline. Yeah. Right, because that's in addition to her current affair. Simeon Lee having. finds out about it. He doesn't. He, he does. just guesses. He, he guesses because he clearly... he's heard the story and yeah, he's like, exactly. yeah, I know what this is. Yeah, so he sort of pushes her buttons over that a bit. Right, so she she was living with an army officer before she was married I to think him. it was a navy officer a not naval officer split hairs. that's fine that's fine you can split hairs all you want um, she was married no she wasn't married she was in an unmarried like live-in relationship of some pretending kind. to be his daughter yeah with a naval officer and to cover this she pretended to be his daughter she um, she did that and then she goes off to marry George but like she's covered up this incident Yes. Um, but she's going around saying, I used to live with my father, who was a naval officer, and Simeon Lee has, like, guessed. So, um, she, um... She is also having an affair. She's having an affair. With a man here. who is not named or introduced in this, but... Yeah. Oh, yeah, she spends she all the money. spending, which is not a yes. good thing if you're married to George Lee. No, no, not good at all. <laughs> yeah. So, David is the next son. There's a lot of people in this book. I don't know if it's yeah. more than normal, but it feels like a lot. It's good. It is quite a lot. I think lots of them have lots of characters in. So David Lee's personality trait is that he is resentful about his mother's death, basically. He's the, he's the one who's taken closely after his mother. Yeah. He's soft yeah. and um, introspective. Yeah, but they say that um, George, Alfred and David look like the mother and Harry looks like the father. Yes. Yeah. Um... So he's gentle and sweet and kind and of an stressed. Artist. Yeah, he's an artist. Mm. Um, so he didn't follow in the footsteps of the businessman father. He's, he's also slightly... He's not as estranged as Harry, but he ran away from home. Yeah, he doesn't like Simeon And Lee. hasn't taken money from Simeon. Yeah. So they probably don't have much money together. No, but they don't seem to be badly off, really. I think they talk about it and they're like, oh, we don't have much, but it's okay. Yeah. They're not really poor, they're they're not rich. Um, And he plays the piano, so his alibi is that he's playing the Death March by Mendelssohn Mm. when the murder happens. This is really hammy, like, really hammy kind of drama. Yeah, um, Hildely is his wife, and um, I think it's heavily signposted that she's a sort of maternal figure to him. Yeah, she's she's quite dowdy. They go on and on about how plain she is all the yeah. time. It feels kind of mean. But she's also quite solid, isn't she? Like, she's this rock. Yeah. She's got yes. drive. She's, like, looked after him, I think. Yeah. Because he's got all this, like, childhood trauma and stuff. Yes, so she's the reason they go 
uh, to Simeon's at Christmas because she's saying you need to address this trauma and deal with it. So she's like on. a good thing. But yes. La- but later, Poirot says that she's capable of murder. Yeah, so she's the like... other person who is apparently capable of murder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Poirot's got some funny ideas in this book, I think. Oh, and these two also are the ones that quote Shakespeare. Um, oh, yeah. They see the body and they're just immediately, like, quoting things. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So is it both of them that quote? I think it actually might be David and Lydia. Yeah, it is. Mm. David's like the mills of God. Grind slow, but they grind exceedingly small. I, th- I don't yeah. know. Yeah, well, I don't, do you know what it means? Yeah, it means they work slowly, but effectively. Mm. You know, they get you, you, you get ground down eventually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, Lydia says, like, Oh, she One says... thing we haven't mentioned that's very important about Simeon Lee is that he is vengeful. He's vengeful, He's yeah. vengeful it's... and he doesn't mind waiting a long time to get he his revenge. He makes sure that he tells everyone a lot that he has a lot I of... I am gr- a vengeful man. <laughs> he's very vengeful and that he has a lot of grudges on yes, people. Yes, I always get my own back. There's this... Isn't it name-dropped a few times that there's a... There was somebody he got vengeance on? Yeah, somebody's so a fart. Is it? Yeah, I think so. Oh. How did he get vengeance on him? Is it even explained? But I think it is him. Harry Lee. Yeah. Harry Lee's... There's quite a lot of these. This sort of um, profligate, playboy, young man. Harry is definitely younger than Alfred. I think he might be younger than George as well. I, I literally don't know how old anyone well, is in this. They're significantly they're older not... than Pilar, aren't they? Because she's yeah, young. Yeah, but Pilar's like 20. Yeah, okay. Um, um, talking of Pilar, um, Harry fancies her, which yes. is a bit awkward because she's oh, his niece. Everyone goes on about he how He keeps saying he she... fancies her, which is a bit like... Yeah, everyone is like cracking on about how, oh, it's a shame she's everyone's niece, like, because yeah. she's so hot. yeah. Um, Harry, the thing about him though is that he's actually a bit pathetic. He's yeah. an, he's an adventurer, but he's not actually got any steel or bravery. He's a, he's a softie. Yeah, he's just soft. He's really. Weak. He's a weak. He's a bit weak. Yeah, but he's he just I quite like Harry. Yeah, he's not. He's actually uh, quite nice. He brings really. the banter. He does. Yes. So, on to Pilar. Yeah, everyone finds her sexy. So she's very yeah, attractive. she's very attractive. In some um, way. Yeah, there's like a love affair between Pilar and Stephen Farr. And Farr. every man in the book. <laughs> Pilar is very um, forward, shall we say. Yes. She's um, she's outgoing. Yeah, she knows what she wants. She knows what she likes. she's not afraid to go and get it. <laughs> she's not afraid to tell everyone. No. She talks about how she likes big men. Yeah. Well, there's a really awkward big scene. I can't remember what is going on, but they're interviewing her. Yeah. Shall I just read the extract? Yeah, go on. She She's just said, um, I think that um, Simeon Lee would have been very handsome when he was a young man. Very handsome, like you, said Peeler to Superintendent Sugden. So mm. it's that moment. And then Colonel Johnson stifled a, a chuckle. It was one of the few occasions he'd seen the solid, the stolid superintendent taken aback. But of course, Pilar continued regretfully, he could never have been so big as you. Hercule Poirot sighed. <laughs> you like then big men, senorita, he inquired. Pilar agreed enthusiastically. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Oh, yes. I like a man to be very big, tall, and the shoulders broad and very, very strong. I just, I find that to be an yeah. odd exchange. It certainly is. Because she's sat in a room, right, with three much older men, right? This is a young Investigating woman. Investigating a murder. Investigating a murder, of which she is, like, a suspect, right? <laughs> yeah. And they're, like, saying, oh, do you like men to be big? And she's like, yes, I really like big men. I like them to have really broad shoulders. And yeah. That is just... Um, but, yeah, it's, it's an odd way to behave. Certainly in a, is. In an in a interview about... A murder interview, mm. yeah. Obviously, Pilar Estravados is not her real name. Uh, Obviously, she turns under out... false priestess. Like every character that comes from everyone. not the closed circle in Agatha Christie's, they're always not who Literally they Literally everyone in this book, except Poirot and Colonel mm-hmm. Johnson, who's not in the family, is there under a false pretense. Yes. Everyone. So Pilar is actually Conchita Lopez who was friends with Pilar and was travelling with her in a car when they got blown up by a in, bomb, by a bomb yeah. in the Spanish Civil War and Pilar died and Conchita was like, well, I suppose I'll Why be not? Pilar now. Yeah, I'll be Pilar. England. And she, obviously then she has a bit of an issue with the passport situation, so um, <coughs> she just takes her normal passport... Um, no, she, she takes, takes Pilar's, Pilar's passport, passport and gets through the border because she kind of looks a bit like her. But then later when Poirot asks to see her passport because he suspects she's lying, um, she thinks it'll be a good idea to throw it out the window. And, um, and just smudge some mud over and the smudge picture. smudge some mud over the picture. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. And then she comes out with this tall tale. She comes out going, Oh no, I, my passport, my bag was just sitting on the windowsill and then my passport just fell out of the window <laughs> and I went down to find it and now it's covered in mud and it's like... Yeah. Wow, that is a tall tale. Certainly is. That is a porky pie. A very eyebrow-raising when you're reading it, Agatha Christie. Eyebrow-raising porky pies. Yeah. Um. So yeah, Pilar, in the so she's there basically to try and like do them out of the inheritance i don't think she is i think she's there to just sort of like live the life of luxury for a bit and then she's gonna head off yeah and it's weird because when they they decide that they're going to inherit her basically they're going to put her into the inheritance yes because she because jennifer was obviously has not in the the inheritance anymore because she's died so she's taken out the will and it doesn't go to it's a terrible will who writes a will that says i'm gonna leave money to the children and not have any clause of like, what happens if there are surviving grandchildren? Yeah, I don't know. So, weirdly, Pilar refuses the inheritance when she's offered it. It's because she wasn't there for the money. Okay, I, I missed that. She was that. there for, like, a good time. She's like, I'll go and have Christmas there and yeah. pretend I'm, you know, I've got access See to the this burning English raisins. luxury. Yeah, and then I'll just, you know, head off and go back to the Civil War. Mm. But she's going to go and live there. She's agreed with Samin Lee. Yeah, I think, yeah, but that... that it's Because it's not directly just taking mm. money and riding off into the sunset. Yeah. So, um, yeah, she refuses it and all decides <clears throat> to come out about how she's not Pilar. Yeah. Which is an interesting twist, because I thought, I assumed that she was there for the money. Yeah, I think there is a bit of a, um insistence in this one on making it all a happy ending. It very much feels like so, that. There's um, like a couple of chapters at the end where it's like everyone sits around and goes, We're well, all friends now. Didn't that turn out well? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's sort of along those lines that the surviving people yeah. like aren't bad. Well, she rides off into the sunset with Stephen Farr. Yeah, but not with the money. No, they go off penniless. Yeah. He's the son, though. 
Yeah, he gets Stephen Farr's Stephen Farr's not poor or anything. Is he's not? you know he's the son mm. of a businessman. No, he's not. Yes, he is. He's the son. Oh yes, of course he is. <laughs> Oh, oh, it doesn't matter. They're go-getting young so types, you know. Okay. Yeah, he's another illegitimate son. They've got... They can make So Stephen Farr comes from South Africa. He's an illegitimate son of Simeon Lee, but he pretends to be Stephen Farr. So he's called Stephen Grant. So I guess he was just, like in the show, he's just, like, raised by a woman that lives in South Africa. Yeah. And he's it, called Stephen Grant. Yes. But then he becomes Stephen Farr, who's Ebenezer Farr. Far's son and Ebenezer Far was the partner, but he's like heard about Ebenezer Far and he he knows that Ebenezer Far's son Stephen has died, but he thinks that probably Simeon won't have heard about the death yet, so yeah, he can get away with this ruse. So he's like, this is an opportunity for me to secretly go and size up my real father. Yeah, see what he's like. and then when he's found out, the first thing he does is he pretends that he's gone along just because he fancies Pilar. And he met her on the train. Yes. So he's like, oh, I fell in love with a girl on the train and I followed her. And Poirot's just like not having any of it. It's a bit of a strange intermediary lie that. He yeah. should really have just gone straight to the other one, given given yeah. that that's also quite unbelievable. Yeah, but unbelievable. that makes him really, really clearly like have an incentive for murder. Yeah. But, oh, well, okay, fine, sure. Although I don't really think it does because like... Just being someone's illegitimate son doesn't give you a motive for murder. Well, you're not going to get any money out of it. I agree, but you're clearly yeah. supposed to believe that it does. Everyone's really vengeful, though, in yes. this book. Um, so, yeah, Stephen Farr's motive turns out to be not that he went to for revenge. Because when I first heard he was an illegitimate son, I was like, oh, it's going to be one of these cases of, like, I was going to kill him, but then someone get there first. Yeah, it's... But it's not really. It's just no. like, oh, I just wanted to see my dad. Yeah, I, which I think actually is a lot more believable than. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's all. That's really all there is to say about him. Yeah. They have. Yeah. A, he's th- also handsome. He's inherited the handsomeness, but not the vengefulness. He's handsome. And he also yeah. has a mustache. Does he? I've which disguises that. his um, identity. It disguises his very similar face. Um, I like the introduction of the book where. Um, well, it made me laugh. Um, where they get onto the train, Pilar and Stephen Farr get onto the train, and you, like, see into their thoughts. Mm. And both of their thoughts are like this. They're like, he was feeling very anxious for what he was about to do. He was <laughs> thinking, I hope that I can achieve the thing that I've come to do. It's yeah. very sneaky, because it doesn't tell you what is the thing he's going to mm. do. So you're immediately thinking, like, is he going to do the murder? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like... You don't know what... Which, based on the adaptation, I was almost half thinking he was. Well, uh, Because yes. he's been merged with um, merged with Sugden in the yeah. adaptation, so I was kind of like, maybe it's been changed. I know, like... I thought that. I was like, maybe... We... Okay, right. So they've merged the character of Sugden and Stephen Farr together for the TV adaptation. Yes. So that Sugden is a police officer in the area, all the same. However, he's an illegitimate son... Of Simeon Lee from South Africa, (laughs) right? With a South African woman who comes across with him. A South African mum. Yeah. Yeah. Mum, yeah. And they both are together in this pub locally and he commits this murder. Yeah. Um, And what I... Because this is baffling because we hadn't read it and then we'd seen the show and it's very memorable, the show. So Mm. we'd seen the TV adaptation and I could just remember it while I was reading it. And you know what was going through my mind towards the end of that book? I was thinking... And this is so stupid. But I was thinking, has Stephen Farr and Sugden been in the same room together yet? 
yeah, that w- that would have been really. That would have been incredible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's possible though, you know. One of my best men, who I often don't see for six months at a time, because in reality thought, like, he lives well, in South Africa. Have they actually been the same room together, like, or are we looking at like a real case of disguising as well? Yeah, no, that was that was thankfully a step too far. <laughs> so this, I think, this novel also stands out for having one of the best Agatha Christie bowlers. Yes, certainly the best name of a butler. Tristillian. Yes. Do you think he's Cornish? It certainly sounds it, doesn't it? Yeah. And he's a key character. Comes into it quite a lot. Yeah, you go inside his head a couple of times. He's a nice guy. Maybe just once. Isn't there quite... So there are other ones with with significant butlers, like The Hollow has a significant butler. I'm just trying to think of ones that have significant... Lord Edward dies. Significant. Has the Greek god butler. It's not a significant (laughs) butler. (laughs) Well, butlers are significant because they have to have a level of trust, mm. don't they, with mm. the family? Yeah, they're always there in the mm. background. And um, <clears throat> so there's this meal that they have on the night, Christmas Eve mm. meal, when um, Simeon Lee, like, unbeknownst to them, is lying dead. But, like, <laughs> <laughs> but they're, um, but they're, he's about to, like, get murdered in there. Like, they're going to hear the struggle and stuff mm. soon. But they're having this tense meal together. You see it all through the butler Tresillian's eyes, mm. which is quite... And it's quite well written. Like, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's nice, this passage. It's a nice um, section, because you see it all through his eyes, so you get a very objective view on the family, which is quite nice. And he's sort of observing them all, and um, he hasn't seen a lot of them for a long time, so he has this, like, view of them all as children, basically, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah, um, He is also very interested in women's clothes, so he has... Um, he has a little commentary on what all the women are wearing. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was nice. Well, he's very aware of social yeah. norms. and he's social aware of social etiquette. Yeah. And he's, I think he's kind of a point of identification for the, for the reader. Because he's yes. like an outsider to the family, yeah. but he's like also a very sympathetic character and stuff. Yeah. Um, and he has this insight which really jogs... Poirot's mind about the whole case which is that Tresillian has this feeling of deja vu <laughs> I guess he thinks he's getting old and imagining things I suppose because yeah. he's like elderly isn't he he's very old yeah yeah and he keeps talking about how to Poirot he's saying like I feel like the past is coming back and stuff and it turns out it's because men keep turning up at the door who, who, are, the who all look the same yeah and they haven't he hasn't seen like because Harry turns up first and he hasn't seen Harry for and years. he is a blast from the past. And he's a blast from the past. But then, like, Sugden's there and he looks the same. And mm. then, like, and then Stephen, Stephen Farr appears and he's the same as well. So Drusillian's getting a bit worried about everything. I, I like the character. I think he's a good character. He's good, yeah. Let's do Horbury. Horbury. <laughs> Horbury, the dodgy valet. So he um, he's new to the family. and um, yeah. he no one trusts him. No one likes him. He's very shifty. Yes. He reminded me a bit of the shifty butler in um, Roger Ackroyd. Because <laughs> Horbury is another yeah. character whose main trait is that he's shifty. Yes. Um, he listens he, at doors. He listens at doors. No one can hear him coming up behind them. Right. He keeps saying that. Oh, okay. He's a bit of a cad. He's known as a cad. Oh, yeah. He's like... he's Is he? Yeah. They talk about him having a way with the local women. Oh, because he went out to... The, his alibi is that he went out to the cinema on the evening yeah. with a lady with from the, the lady. dairy down the road. 
Which frankly doesn't sound that caddish. It sounds fine. I think he's been going from lady to lady though. Oh really? Yeah. In the TV adaptation, he's like, "See you later, ladies," on the way out. Oh yeah, is that the nod to it? Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. It, it turns out that his subplot is basically he's just a blackmailer. Yeah, hence why he, he moves the on classic a lot. breaking a cup when uh, Tresillian mentions the police. Yeah, and everyone's like, "Oh, he's never broken a cup before." I like the way Tresillian just tells him off for breaking he's like you shouldn't have been touching the cups I've been washing them up for 40 years he's just having a little look at a cup because he thinks he's just looking at it oh it's a nice cup and then and then Tresillian's like well there was a police superintendent (gasps) just came in the house and he drops the cup obviously because he's like he's come for me after my blackmailing history Mm -hmm. yep um Everyone wants to pin it on poor Horbury, who's just a petty criminal. He's not a murderer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and the thing is, like, he's the only person who, like, basically definitely did not do this. He's the only <laughs> person with a proper alibi. Yeah, because I suppose um, Sugden's got a proper alibi. Yeah, Sugden has a proper alibi. Yeah, it's just very artificial. It's just not true. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, yeah, everyone wants to pin it on him because mm-hmm. he's dodgy. Mm-hmm. But they don't get to. Yeah. He's not a murderer. Yeah. Right. This is where things are going to get fun. So, Sugden has been living in the community. Yeah. Um, along with his estranged father just in the next town. So, he's been brought up by his mother, who's been provided with money and stuff to raise the kid. Yes. Right. Um, um, but he's been boiling like with vengeful feelings and stuff. Simeon Lee doesn't know that Sugden's his son though, does he? He doesn't know who he is, but he knows that he knows that he had an illegitimate son with a woman in the area. Yeah, he doesn't put two and two together though. But the woman's yeah, not in the area. The woman's from next county over. Okay. A woman from the next county over. Yeah. That's still quite close. Relatively nearby. Yeah. yeah. He knows that he, he knows he has an illegitimate sons all over the place, but yes, he doesn't. True. He doesn't realize that this is one of them. Yeah, despite the fact he, he looks just like him. Yeah, but you wouldn't, would you? If just a random younger guy appears at the door. Yeah, you're not going to be yeah, like, yeah, "Oh, yeah. you look like me. You must be my son." <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> anyway, okay. So the components of this crime are the following: this false meeting with Simeon Lee about diamond theft. Yes. Which is totally concocted. Mm-hmm. But he did phone him and ask for a meeting about a diamond theft. So yes. there's that much is true. But then when Sogden's explaining, he flips it the other way around. He says yeah. that Simeon he says that phoned he was him called. Yeah. and says, my diamonds have been have gone missing. Yeah. Then there's the throat cutting. Mm-hmm. Then there's the diamond theft. So he takes the um, diamonds from the safe. Yeah. Just somehow he knows the code. Like, it's because he's been to speak to him about the diamonds oh, already okay. and Simeon Lee is like, oh, don't worry, I've got the key in my <laughs> dressing gown. When we do Simeon Lee, he sounds really croaky. Yeah. <laughs> he does, in the show, he sounds like... I am Simeon Lee. <laughs> very much like that. Yeah. Um, he hides the diamonds later in one of the small gardens made by Lydia. Just yeah. amongst the pebbles. Yeah. These uncut diamonds. Then he makes the tower of furniture and ornaments in the room. Then he ties the string round this tower and then he he puts the string through the window. Mm-hmm. Feeds the string through the window so that it dangles down. All and very then... lucky that no one walks in on him whilst he's doing all of this. Yeah, well, he has it all up. I don't think he does at this point. I suppose he's he he's based it. on the fact it's handy that yeah, Simeon Lee is commonly saying, don't disturb me. 
Yeah, no, yeah. he's already told people not to disturb yeah. him. And then there's the dying pig. And then there's the sodium citrate and the animal blood. So sodium citrate keeps yeah, blood from clotting. Splashes pig apparently. blood all over it. Apparently it keeps blood from clotting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, he takes a bottle of animal blood with him. Um, but not a knife. And then there's apparently this little detail, which I'd missed the first time around, but you told me about, which is that he lights a fire to keep the body warm. Yeah, that that doesn't sound very plausible to me. Unless you literally, like... <laughs> Plonked him right in front of the fire. And in that <laughs> case, he'd be really the... warm on one side and cold yeah. on the other. And then he puts the key in the door and turns it from the outside with pliers or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all of this concocts a locked room mystery. So yeah, it's but none, classic none, of it, none of it points towards like a singular thing. Like, no, know, it's he could very have complicated. framed it as a suicide, but he framed it as about five things at once just to make it really confusing. It's such a complicated um, setup. <clears throat> Yeah. I think any more than these components and it would have been too much. Like, it's already feeling like it's, like, beyond comprehension how difficult it is to pull yeah. off. Um, it's like the kind... It's, like, almost feels like a bit of a pastiche or a mystery story. Like, it's so silly. Mm. So, the the nature of this crime is that it's incredibly gruesome and bloody, right? Mm. Um, and apparently this was... Agatha Christie was responding to criticism that her murders were too sanitised. So she wanted to have, like, a really gory one. Yep. Um, I think that's kind of interesting because, although superficially this is, like, a really bloody murder, the way it's written is, like, not... Mm. Doesn't make sense as a, like, to be what it is. Yeah, well, Sugden doesn't get any blood on him. Sugden leaves the house without any blood on him. Mm. It's also, like... What I was saying to you yesterday, like, all the family come up to the room, right, together, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they all go in and, like, see this scene and this body, like, in all this... They talk about there's blood everywhere, right? Yeah. They say, who'd this... have thought the old men have so much blood Yeah, and they're him? just standing there, like, chatting normally and quoting Shakespeare and stuff. Mm. And there's blood everywhere. Yeah, none of them really freak out. This is not normal behaviour, like, nobody would do this. Yeah. It would be so, so viscerally terrifying and unpleasant. Mm-hmm. It's just not plausible. So, it, although she's trying to get, like, like... I get why it's like that. This is trying to be, like, a bloody murder, but not actually have any sense of a bloody murder. Mm. Yeah. It's just not very plausible. Yeah. Well, there's a People lot in this People would be screaming and crying plausible. and running away. Yeah. <laughs> I also think that it's so risky... I mean, this is part of the reason I like it, because it's it's a risky one. I like the ones that have a risky feel to them, mm-hmm. where you think, wow, the, the, the murderer is really confident that yeah. he's going to pull this plan off. It relies on no one interrupting him, as you said. Oh, yeah, I mentioned. It also relies on nobody in the house having a good alibi, which they could have done. Because yeah. he's got, he doesn't know what they're doing. Well, no, I suppose they aren't going to have good alibis because they are all just going to be dependent Wandering on each other. Wandering around the house, yeah. Um, also, uh, no one looks for the murder weapon or cares about the murder weapon. Yeah, there's no murder weapon in, in the room. It's weird, like, why not just No one leave? even mentions yeah. it. Um, it has the potential to go so wrong. Like, yeah, it's weird that he spent years planning it because... You think he would have thought of something better than this? You would think, but he didn't. Because he's like, I spent my whole life building my vengeful plan, but instead of like doing a quick poisoning, I'm going to go with the tower of furniture and the, and whoopee, the, cushion. And the whoopee cushion. Yeah, yeah. 
But also, see also the cannonball. Yeah, cannonballs also. But to be fair, it does have to do that one on on the hoof. Yeah. But we like it because it's fun. Have we actually explained what he does here? He balances a cannonball on top of a door so that when the door gets opened, it falls on Pilar. Yeah. It's not a normal thing to do. No. It's very scooby scooby do, I think. Yes. And I also like how counterintuitive this would have been to pull off. This is like the ultimate of cut. So we're saying about the blood and the gore mm. of this crime, right? Yeah. So you got to imagine this scene, right? Something's in the room. Like, he's just done the thing that he's been building towards for, mm-hmm. like, decades of his life. Like, he's just committed the murder, right? He's probably really psyched up and frightened and stuff. And then he has to build the tower. With the yeah. body in the room with him. Yeah. And, like, and get the fire going and splash some blood about. <laughs> Yeah, he's just like, I've done the murder and now I have to do like half an hour of like <laughs> prepping. Yeah, weird work. Yeah, weird things. And I have to blow up this balloon and like put a peg in it. And... The balloon comes pre-inflated, I believe. Really? Mm-hmm. So he has this so. bag with him with a bottle of pig's blood <laughs> and a balloon in it. But not enough because he just picks that off the so mental base. It, it doesn't say this in the f- book, but in the TV show, he doesn't even bring a knife. He just. just uh, there'll be a knife there. <laughs> he just gets one off the mantelpiece. <laughs> yeah, like an ornamental knife that Simeon yeah. Lee's got on the wall. Yeah. Very strange. Do you think that a tower of furniture that's collapsed looks like a struggle? No. I don't think he thought it through very hard. No. But there's this struggle, which, can I say, the Tower of Furniture, this is not a joke, like, this Tower of Furniture involves a, mog- <laughs> involves a mahogany table. Mm. Like, this is a major struggle. Yeah, it's extremely silly. <laughs> also, the potential for risk, right? The potential for things to go wrong. Yeah. What about the string gets caught and doesn't come out the window? Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's possible. And involving this balloon was a big mistake, I think. You don't need a scream. You don't no. have to have a scream. No. Well, yeah. I mean, that, um, that's in for, you know, license in the book. Because the, the risk then of leaving behind any rubber or a peg, or, this is becoming a big risk. Well, it's a, he knows about the risk. He's planning to get in there first and pick it pick up. Pick it up, the plug. Yeah. so stupid. Yeah. Just don't bother with the, the dying yeah. peg. And also, the thing that I think is weird is he doesn't know Simeon Lee, right, Mm -hmm. at all, but he goes for throat cutting and generating this horrendous scene. Mm. Like, that does not ring true, in my opinion. It's just a massive overkill. I'm not saying it matters. I suppose his mother might have led, like, a life of shame. Yeah, maybe. Because everyone in the village might know that she was knocked up, like, illegitimately. Maybe that's why then. Yeah. yeah, and maybe he was treated badly yeah. because everyone knew he was like an illegitimate child. Mm. So maybe that's why he goes with a really gory crime. Yeah. It really implies like a hatred. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it is that kind of crime essentially because it's not about money. No, no. It's like a crime of passion. Um, but he is like one of our favourite kinds of Agatha Christie murderers mm. because he planned the murder for years or even decades, he planned to do it. And also, he planned his career in such a way that he could get away with a murder. <laughs> yeah. And then even regardless of that, he still does a really shoddy, complex, but really shoddy murder. Yeah. Yeah. That's just a real what, messy know. job, like... Which is not apparently very in keeping with his character, because he's apparently, like, quite a, you know, um, no-frills, gets-the-job-done policeman. 
Yeah, he's a good he's a good policeman. Yeah. So he's one of Colonel Johnson's best men. He is, yeah. That's what he says at the end. But specifically he's believe. like he doesn't do flashy things and he takes his time to get there, but he'll get there. Yeah. Yeah, he's a good stolid policeman. Yeah, exactly. Um at the end Colonel Johnson. He's not Johnson, a risk taker. Colonel Johnson at the end is like, I can't believe it's one of my best men. <laughs> one of my best men. Yeah. What's the force coming to? I ne- <laughs> yeah. Anyway, right, the dying pig. I've got a whole notes on the dying pig. Right, okay. Okay, right. Because we need to explain this because this isn't a thing that exists anymore. No. Because it's not a very tasteful toy for children nowadays. No, it's not. It's called a dying pig. And yeah. Right, so I'm going to fi- show you the dying pig advert. Because um, I found like one thing on the internet about this. Okay. Okay, right, here we are. Dying pigs. Okay. It says it was a... an early 20th century toy Mm. right so they are actually shaped like a pig right okay apparently it was it in the show no it had Had a pig drawn drawn on it it, they were rubber balloons and you inflated them and when they deflated they would make a sound like a dying pig screaming yeah um so there's this picture on like of an advert of one and there's a woman blowing it up yeah okay and it says what is the latest novelty the dying pig Pleases the children. A laugh, <laughs> a laugh for young and old. Okay. Right? Um, oh, wow. There's an article about it in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. The most popular and the funniest of the balloons is the so-called dying pig. These odd little figures, with which most of you are probably familiar, are very plump and jovial-looking creatures when blown up. And as the air gradually leaves them, they utter a mournful squeal and become thinner and thinner, finally toppling over in a dejected heap. In the funniest possible way. Sounds hilarious. They, they're very funny. Well, it's adverts. It's an advertising, isn't it? It's advertising, so you have to make it sound very funny. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they were quite funny. Um, so, um, what's interesting is that the Observer, the contemporary review of the book from the Observer, said that the scream was very guessably a dying pig, I think. Yeah, well, I guess if they were a popular toy at the time, yeah. then... And the thing with the rubber in the peg. Yeah. And you'd be like, okay, I see so, what's going on here. So um, we've sourced, because we like we always do our research. You can't say we don't spoil you. Mm-hmm. We have sourced a balloon. A real-life balloon. <laughs> no expense so spared actually, on this podcast. It's a 30th birthday balloon. I think you're going to have but... to move away from the microphone to do this. <laughs> I'll hold it away from the microphone. Yeah, because it made it so loud. So... James is going to demonstrate the sound of a dying pig so that you can see if you think it would mm-hmm. really sound like someone screaming. Figure it here, I'll do it. Yeah, so um, I don't know if you thought that sounded like a man screaming. Yes, we'll leave that up to the listener's judgment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it did sound a bit like a soul in hell, though, I thought. (laughs) Sounded like a balloon, but, you know. Yeah, so... um... Anyway, Anyway. that was a lot of fun. (laughs) Right.
I think it's important to note that it's a real... So this is, like, all of it's really in Agatha Christie's true writing style, like the most Agatha Christie writing style you could imagine, where everybody is saying quite implausible things to each other all the time. Yeah, conversations are very strange. They change tone very quickly. Um, People sit down together for the first time ever and go, what would you do if you had an enemy? Yeah. I would cut his throat. Yes. And stuff like that. There's very much a lot There's a lot of that. Yeah, we've we've mentioned, and everybody does an exposition at the beginning. Yes. Explaining what they've done with their lives. This is who I am. Why are you telling me this? I'm your your wife. I know who you are. (laughs) I know how you've spent the last 30 years. Anyway, Hilda, then I went to art college. <laughs> yeah, he does say that. I noticed that. In the David and Hilda one goes a bit far, because it's like, and then I went to art school, and it's like, she knows. She's your wife. You see her every yeah. day. Anyway, yeah. So, I, I don't know. I actually really liked it, because it's a Christmas book. It needs to be kind of exciting and fun and theatrical in style. So yeah, I certainly not it. meant... Some of them are a bit more serious, and that was clearly oh, not yeah, the intention with this one. It's not a serious book, really. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> it's just very campy and dramatic and, mm. and intense in style. Um, yeah. So, it's one of the biggest twists I've encountered in Agatha Christie. Yes. So the policeman does it. The policeman on the case did it. Yes. Now that is a big deal, in my opinion. It is, it is. yeah. He's a very dodgy policeman. Though. I wonder if you'd get it if you didn't know. It's I think serious signposting could. to I it. I mean, well, the most fishy well, thing is the yeah, fact that he immediately he was, turns up on the scene of the crime. The fishiest thing is that he's in the story before the murder, right? Yeah. This is not usual for a policeman yeah. in a murder <clears> mystery. <throat> The whole thing about the meeting about the diamonds is the fishiest thing ever. Oh, yeah. I think if I was reading this for the first time, I wouldn't necessarily think... I don't think I'd have guessed I wouldn't necessarily think that he's the murderer, but I would definitely be like, okay, there's going to be something about this policeman. There's something weird about this Maybe he stole the diamonds. Maybe he's an illegitimate son, but I probably wouldn't have suspected him of being the murderer. um, He's just... Do you think it breaks the rules? Because apparently this is a rule. I think it's a detection. I don't think so, because it's... It's not told from his point of view. I think it's a dete- it was a detection club rule that it can't be somebody who's investigating crime. I think that is one of the rules. I mean, obviously, we don't... Nobody follows these rules, but... Like, yeah, I don't think that matters. Pretty interesting, though. As you've written here, policemen have lives, too. Yeah, um, Poirot's like, a lot of people forget that policemen have lives, too. Mm. So, Poirot's methods. Yes. <laughs> Revolve mainly around buying things from the joke shop in this one. (laughs) Yeah, he spends a lot of time in the local joke shop buying dying pigs. (laughs) Dying pigs and false moustaches. moustaches, Um, But he says his main method is to focus on the victim. So the victim is the key to the crime. It certainly is. So in this case, that means... (laughs) We got Simeon Lee is yeah. the is the victim, and it's like, well, he's a horrible man, mm. and he keeps saying he's got loads of illegitimate sons. <laughs> so I guess, so I guess that's what's happened. So one yeah. of them, and there's suddenly loads of young men walking around who all look of similar. Age. They all look the same, and they all have mustaches. Yeah. <laughs> so um, at the end of the book. Poirot goes through 
all of the alibis of everyone there. And we haven't mm-hmm. really talked in detail about the alibis. The alibis are a key part of the novel because there's so many characters. And they're all in the house together. Yeah. The only one who's not is Horbury. Mm. No one he cares. actually has a decent alibi. No one suspects Tresillian. No one even thinks about Tresillian. No. No, I guess Tresillian's loyal. He's been a loyal servant all these years. So he's yeah. got no reason to do it. He's got no reason. Um, but they... Um, and they've all seen him in different places. I remember so watching this. I remember watching this like years ago and being quite taken with the way he goes through all the alibis and like picks them apart, especially the argument. Because so the first alibi is Harry and Alfred. So all the alibis are rubbish. They're all like I was just alone in a room doing something. Yeah, or, or like or I was with my wife or my brother. <laughs> I was just with my wife. I was with my brother. Just ask my wife; she'll vouch for me. I'll give you my word. <laughs> I give you my word. I give you my word. Yes. <laughs> they're all, As an MP. They're all like that. Yeah. So um, the first one is Harry and Alfred, right? And they were having an argument. They were having a, a, a convenient argument. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Poirot says, well, because they were in the room having an argument, Poirot says, like, um, you could have just one of you been in the room and, like, shouting and then the other one's not there. And it's like a one-sided thing, yeah. which is kind of... Interesting, and they it's actually quite nice to imagine Alfred well, they, just they in the it. room, just like shouting away. They by do himself. it in the TV. Do yeah. you know in the TV they actually act this out? Yeah, um, and you see the camera, like, so you see like Alfred's in the room, like shouting, yeah, and then the camera like pans around, and you see that there's like no one there. Unfortunately, like, in the TV adaptation, the guy that plays Alfred, I think, is actually a very good actor. It's quite a good portrait and like believable portrayal. Whereas in my head it would be a lot more hammy. Because yeah. Alfred is a lot more of a silly character, a silly character in the book. Yeah. Because um, it's one of these Agatha Christie tricks that mm. you wouldn't notice it. Because you mm. just take for granted if you saw the one person there arguing, you'd just take that for granted. Mm. I think it's like one of her signature tricks is mm. that she always talks about <clears throat> when you create an illusion of something, nobody questions it. They just don't think any further yeah. than the obvious thing. Yeah. Um, so I quite like that one. This, the the I mean there are a few like this. Um, Stephen well, Farr was just in a room listening to a gramophone yeah, on his I own. D- I d- yeah, I had the like, music on. Of course, yeah, I, I was. Like, everyone heard the like, music. Nobody was there with you, and he's like, "Well, we could hear the music," and it's like it's a terrible alibi. Yeah. David and Hilda are just hanging out, playing together. the piano to get playing the Death March on yeah. the piano together. Yeah, obviously have a vested interest in saying each other were there. <laughs> Um, and the weirdest one of all is like Lydia's just at the window hanging out, right? Yeah. And, right. Tresillian sees her. Tresillian sees her at the door. He yeah. goes in, sees her there. Right. <laughs> Can you explain this? <laughs> She's wearing a dress that looks like the curtains. She's wearing like a dress with like a big bit at the back or something. Yeah. It's like a shape. And she stood by the curtains. And then, in order to explain how this could be a fake alibi, Poirot explains that Lydia could have just, like, stuffed the curtains a bit. (laughs) (laughs) And relied on Tresillian seeing the curtains and being like, ah, there's Lydia. (laughs) Yeah, I think that one, in truth, is actually quite a decent alibi. he He says to them at the end, he says, Tresillian has bad eyesight, so... But Tresillian's, like... This doesn't make sense. Lydia wouldn't stuff the curtains yeah, with this, some this, fabric. This one in truth and, is actually a perfectly fine And just rely on Tresillian turning up at the door with coffee <laughs> and then being like, oh, I have bad eyesight, so I'm going to assume... <laughs> so I'll just leave a coffee here for these curtains. I'm going to assume, assume that bulge in the curtains is Lydia. <laughs> what? 
I didn't yeah. understand it at yeah, all. It, Lydia has a perfectly good alibi. Um, <laughs> I get it in theory, but it's like, I just felt like saying, like, are you saying she planned that? That mm-hmm. makes no sense. Um, George and Magdalene <laughs> say that they're both using the telephone at the same time. So George and Magdalene are like in the police interview and they're both like, I was using the telephone. Yeah. No, I was using the telephone. Oh, oh no, we can't both be using the telephone at the same time. <laughs> Yeah. They did not. So they check up on George, and it turns out he was using the telephone, but then not at the. He stopped six minutes before the murder. Yeah. How do they know exactly when the murder was? I was wondering this the other day. Because they heard the scream. Yeah, and someone just happened to have a digital clock. No, they looked at the clock. Yeah. As the time. But they were like scream nine oh six. Yeah. Where did the six minutes go? They check up on George's phone call, and it turns out it turns out it ended like nine minutes before the actual murder, right? But then it turns out he just sat there for <laughs> nine minutes. And then George is like, nothing. okay then. He's like, okay then. I just stayed in the room and considered making another phone call. Yeah. So his alibi is just like, I just sat in the room like wondering whether to make a phone call yeah. on my own. Which is itself to cover up the much lesser crime of snooping through Alfred's stuff. Yeah, he had a little snoop in his papers to just yeah. check on him. Yeah, just see what's nosy. going on. But so that's the actual thing that happened. But George, like this is, I just think it's the worst Agatha Christie alibi I've ever seen. Yeah, well, I mean, well, I was Mag- just sitting Mag- there thinking. Magdalene's alibi is: I went to go and have a phone call with my illicit lover, saw my husband making a phone call, so just sort of hid amongst the coats outside. <laughs> Honest, that's what I was doing. That is her alibi, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, like you pointed out. Because we talked about this because we'd forgotten how this even turns out. But he actually does have an alibi, and it's that he's having a snoop. Yeah. Which but is omitted from the CPM adaptation. <laughs> In the TV show, they don't say that, so it's just like... so George He is... was just sat there by himself. <laughs> he was just thinking about whether to make a phone call or not yeah. for like nine well, you minutes. Know, maybe he was very conflicted. He is a massive cheapskate, so maybe he was like, I don't want yeah. to pay the operator. No, I think he did say something about, like, I don't want to pay for the phone or yeah. something. I'm mm. sure he did. Anyway, so yeah, amazing. <laughs> Amazingly good alibis yeah. all around. And the round. piece de resistance of alibis is Pilar. Right. She went to she visit... She went to visit her grandfather, yeah. her fake grandfather, and um, the door was locked and she couldn't get in and someone else was there. Well, the, she goes there, she's See, knocking on the door, she finds it's locked, there's no response, she, and then the scream starts, and, and just as just, the scream starts, she sees someone coming. So she just pretends to be a statue in, like... <laughs> she goes into an like, alcove There's, like, some, some statues. statues in the alcove, so she just pretends to be yeah. a statue. Stephen Farr runs past being like, oh, there's three statues. <laughs> <laughs> then a couple of days later, he's like, I thought there were three statues there, but now there's only two. Yeah. <laughs> It's very Scooby-Doo, isn't it? Yes, very much so. She said she was just in her room um, yeah. doing her makeup, but Poirot then later disproves this. How? Because if oh, she, she, wouldn't she have said heard. she heard the scream from her <laughs> room, and Poirot's like, nah, you wouldn't have heard it from all the way over there. And he knows this because um, he goes to um, 
Simeon Lee's room mm-hmm. with Stephen Farr just to do a little experiment halfway through the <laughs> and book. And also just to mess with Stephen Farr. Yeah, and to mess with him. And while he's just in the room with him, he just like lets out a high piercing scream. Yeah. <laughs> and Stephen Farr like freaks out. And it turns out you can't hear it from Pilar's room. Yeah, because they placed something in there to test it. Yeah, hmm. but... um Stephen Farr's like, good God, man. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't like it. Well, you wouldn't, would you? You'd be yeah. like, what the hell are you doing? Like, And the funniest thing that I think Poirot does, which really cracks me up, is, okay, so he thinks mm-hmm. that um, Sugden might be an illegitimate son of Simeon Lee. And he thinks this because he thinks he looks a bit like him. Yeah. And he knows that because there's a portrait of Simeon Lee as a young man in the house. And just happens to look a lot like Sugden. <laughs> yeah. And this is quite funny because Poirot does a little bit of practical detecting here because in order to test this out, he buys a fake moustache from like the local shop. Mm. Um, and he um, he gets the portrait of Simeon Lee and he like takes it away to his room mm. and he puts the fake moustache on the portrait and like <laughs> looks at it in this room and he sees Sugden in the picture. Mm. I just found that really funny. It's very silly. <laughs> <laughs> so this book obviously takes place at Christmas. And there's something about mysteries at Christmas that are really cro- really cosy. Yeah. They like are a festive tradition now, I think. You always see Agatha Christie's on the TV now around yes. Christmas yes, time. Yes, often extra broadcasts of these things yeah and they often will do a new one or something mm. you know they've done a few recently like the yeah. one with bill nye and they also did the one with toby um what's he called toby jones and they did one with kim katralin too right um they've done a few over the past decade or so new ones so yeah there was the one like, with john malkovich and yeah Rupert you watched that, I didn't well, see I only it. watched one of it. You didn't like it, It was you? very bad. I suppose he's another Poirot we didn't rate. Yeah, a bit of a weird one. A weird Poirot, yeah. His, so, um, in his um, moustache dye kept washing out. In yeah, it. but there's like something about mysteries at Christmas that make everyone feel really cosy, I think. Mm. There's something lovely about just like shutting the curtains and like putting on a nice roaring fire and just like watching... A lovely TV adaptation of an Agatha Christie at Christmas time. Yes. I think it's because Christmas time itself is tied up with lots of ideas of old fashioned things yeah, and true, ornamentation and feelings. Yeah, I also think because they they involve the family gathering, there's also often a lot of heightened emotion around Christmas and like drama oh, and yeah. kind of excitement and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think there's this like combination of like really peaceful and calm and cozy, but also with this like heightened family drama maybe mm-hmm. is going to erupt. In the mystery. Yeah, yeah. And there's also this kind of tradition that we have. I don't know if they have it around the world, but I think in England there's, like, definitely a focus... Because of Charles Dickens, there's, like, a focus on, like, ghost stories um, and dark things at Christmas. <clears throat> yes. So you get a lot of, like, Victorian-themed stuff that's, like, mm. to do with, like, the Christmas carol and stuff. Well, and we have Ebenezer Farr. Yeah, in, so in, in this, this they've got Ebenezer Farr. I, don't, I couldn't work Stephen out whether... Stephen Farr's fake dad. Whether this was a reference or I not. think it is. Yeah. I think it must be. Um, but it's I also think it's like, that. right, so to have cosy indoors, you need to have something dark outside that you're shutting out. Yeah, so yeah. So I think there's kind of an element of like, oh, outside it's really dark and cold. Yes, the weather outside is frightful. Yeah, exactly. So and that makes it cosier inside to yeah, hide yeah, yeah. from no, all I, that I, stuff. So no, I think I that there's kind of an element of that in the whole Christmas 
murder mystery, ghost story, gothic kind of atmosphere mm-hmm. that you get around this mm-hmm. time of year. So to finish off, I think we should talk about the TV show. We've gone on about this a lot. Yeah. You think it's a good one? Yes, I do. I like it. Okay. It's. I liked it too. It's simplified and it's, um, yeah, it simplifies things. So um, Stephen Fire is written out and he's merged sort of partly with Harry and partly with... Um, Sugden. Sugden. So he gets... So Harry gets the love story with Pilar and... Yeah, because um, he turns out not to be the real uncle. Yeah, um, so which doesn't that. make sense. And it? Sugden instead is actually from South Africa and yeah. really, really dedicated his whole life to this yeah. one murder. Yeah, and it's almost like his mother set him up to it a bit as well because yeah. she comes over specially from yeah. South Africa to watch this whole unfold. Yeah. Um, and she Sim- and she stays at like the Black Bull pub down the road. <laughs> Sim- Simeon Lee is made more evil. He, He's horrible. He killed his partner. Yes, yeah, so he killed Ebenezer Farr, I guess. He kills him. Yes. Yeah, horrible. Um, he's also really lecherous and vile in the show. Like yeah. He like sort of harasses all the women and it's yeah, really yeah. nasty. He's much nastier, isn't mm. he? Yes, he's really horrible. It has possibly like one of the best denouements on the TV show ever because... So, right, the setup is, right, Pilar has just been bashed over the head with a Club. stick because they don't have the cannonball on the show. Yeah. Um, by Sugden. Um, and she's had to go to bed with, like, probably quite a nasty concussion and stuff. Yeah. Um, and she's just, like, in their pyjamas or whatever, like, in the bed, like, with a bandage around her head, like, mm. and they're all in the bedroom with her and they're doing, like, the denouement in the bedroom, right? Well, it's because Poirot comes and says... Pilar has something to say to you all. Yeah, and they, they start the whole, you know, drawing room scene in the bedroom yeah, instead. saying I'm, I'm actually but What's going on at the time is that, uh, obviously, Sugden's South African mother is staying at... The, is it called the Bull? It's like the a Black Bull. It's, it's called the, the Black, Black Bull. Bull. And it's, like, in the village. And it's just, like... So, like, just before he does the full, like, whodunit style denouement, Poirot is just, like... But first, I have to take you all somewhere. We all have to go to the Black Bull. And you, like, when we were watching it, you were like, oh, you're not going to go to the pub, are you? Like, and he's like, oh, yeah, we are. We're well, all going to... They get gonna... Pilar out of bed. And Pilar... She has to go through the village with her head bandaged up. <laughs> and they just... And they just walk to the pub. And yeah. then, like, don't they, like, bang on the door of the of the lady? Yeah. And, and she's just like, I thought I'd be seeing you or something. <laughs> it's very... Yeah. It's very dramatic. Yeah. And then Sugden comes in just on a on a visit to his mum. Yeah. And he's like, what's going on here? <laughs> the guy who plays Sugden does it very strangely. He's very he's, sinister. He's very well spoken. He's very well spoken. I quite like him in the TV. He is. He's very soft spoken and very polite and serious. If you can make anything of this, I'll resign from the force. <laughs> I think I'd better go and check on Sergeant Stubbs. enormous moustache. Like, he is very shifty. Yeah. But yeah, he in the show he definitely spent all his years building up to this whole crime, <laughs> yeah. and yet he doesn't even take a knife to the crime scene. Like he just relies be on there, the being probably. one. There'll probably be one there. If there isn't, I'll just bash him over the head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, yeah, he probably thought if there wasn't one there, he could strangle him or something, or just hit him over the head. Since mm. hitting people over the head's like his thing, maybe yeah. he was going to do that. Mm. Um, also, amazingly, he in the TV show, but not in the book, he fits into my second category of the most daring murderers. <laughs> yeah, 
He deliberately involves Poirot in the murder. <laughs> yeah, he tells Simeon Lee to invite Poirot around um, yeah. for the Christmas holidays. And, and this is not really explained why he does this, but they just say, like, he wanted to have an expert witness to the crime. Yeah, here's going totally through the looking glass. Do you think Sugden smashed up Poirot's central heating in his flat? Well, the whole thing, in the show, Poirot goes to... Gorston Hall to stay there because his central heating was broken. Yeah. <laughs> the so whole thing with that was really weird because I thought, like, it's re- his flat's probably really nice and expensive and his landlord hasn't even told him that the boiler has broken over Christmas. Well, I think it's like, it's an emergency yeah. breakage. I know, but the, he calls the landlord and they're just like, oh, sorry. Yeah, I mean, you know, what, you know what Poirot is like? He, w- he would not do this. He would go and stay at the Savoy or something, wouldn't yeah, he? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. He wouldn't go stay with Check like random nice. weird strangers who phone him up saying, I'm going to have some <laughs> diamonds. My life is in danger. <laughs> random, I am evil. Just a random strange man with yes. an evil voice phones him and asks him to come I over. I am a very bad man. <laughs> So, um, I should imagine lots of people want to kill me. <laughs> is that what he says? Yeah, he does. He does say that. He says, someone wants to kill me, and then Poirot's like, who wants to kill you? And he's like, who doesn't want to kill me? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God. Yeah, um... Yeah, so, um... <laughs> The mum comes over for, from South Africa for the, uh, for the for murder, the murder. <laughs> just to see what's going on. Do you think he wrote her a letter first? Was like doing Dear murder, mother. finally doing murder after forty years. <laughs> Come and stay in the back after <laughs> after long and distinguished career in the police have decided to do murder. It's time. Yeah. Come and stay in the black book. Yeah. I've booked you a room. <laughs> uh, there's a subplot as well. Japs in it. He yeah. doesn't do anything, but he's in it at the beginning and the end because Jap is he like... Does. He does. He does a little bit of investigating. He, he oh. just fills in for Colonel Johnson, who's, oh, okay. who's not in it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, because it's, <laughs> because it's Christmas, there's a few subplots. <laughs> he's had to go and stay with his... Jap apparently has a Welsh laws. wife. Like, and he has Welsh to go and in-laws. stay in the valleys. Yeah, in, it's really uh, nice. Like a Welsh looks, mining town. To be honest, it looks really cosy and nice yeah, down there. But um, Jap hates he, singing. His in-laws really like singing, so yeah. um, he finds it all a bit much because they have basically... They're have, in a little tenement, aren't they? And they live in like, a, in like a back-to-back terrace yeah, and yeah. Um, they, um, they all gather around the piano and have a good sing-song, Christmas sing-song. And um, Jap doesn't like that because he's, yeah. he's not really like that, is he? No, he's uh, buttoned <laughs> he's a, up. Um, yeah, he's a repressed Englishman. Englishman. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> he finds that all a bit much. But he, um, the story is that he gives Poirot a nice Christmas present before he goes away, and um, Poirot opens it on Christmas Day, and it's um, a pair of woolly mittens, yeah. woolly gloves, knitted especially. Yes, by, they have sort of Nordic patterns on them. Yeah, by Mrs. Jap. Yeah, they're very nice. They look yeah, they really look great. warm. They look really nice, but obviously because Poirot. Is a, a massive dandy. Commudgeonly individual. He mm. um, doesn't like he's them, like, and he won't wear them. Oof. And obviously, Jap notices because he's not an idiot. Like, and it's just very rude. Yeah, they're going back home at the end, and um, Jap's like, "You're not gonna wear. You're not gonna wear the gloves." He's like, <laughs> he's "Oh, like, I keep them for best," and it's like, "I oh, would only he's... wear them at church." Um, Jap just knows. It's so rude, mm, but it's it so awful. typical. It's really sad because he's I know, like, it's not nice. my, my, my wife's been working on them for all year. <laughs> it's not very nice, really, but um, what do you expect from Poirot? It's kind yeah. of how he does things, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, 
Yeah, so that's Jap. But if um, Poirot, can I say, you notice Poirot doesn't even get Jap a present. He does. Does he? He gives him the cigars. Oh, he gives him nice Cuban cigars. Jamaican cigars. Jamaican cigars. Yeah, that he gets from the I don't know why they're Jamaican. He gets them from the local shop that he got all of the pigs, dying pigs from and all that stuff. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so... um, The the shopkeeper, he is most jovial. (laughs) He says that, doesn't he? Yeah. He delights in the childish pranks. Oh, Sugden does another great thing that murderers sometimes do, which is uh, when like he realises the gig is up, uh, the jig's up, he attacks Poirot. Does he go um, for him? Yeah, he yeah. goes, rah! <laughs> <laughs> and they stop him, and he's like, okay, sorry, I don't know what came over me. <laughs> he's back to his <laughs> usual goes, self. Yeah, yeah, he goes over to his mum, he's just sat there being like, He like oh, kneels down, yeah. and then she like and pats... like, I'm sorry, mother. <laughs> she like, like pats him on the hair. And she goes, well, we did well, Harold. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, oh off to your hanging. So the moral of the story is, if you're a murderer, just do something normal. Don't do the big tower of mahogany furniture with the uh, string and the whoopee cushion. Mm. Yeah, don't do that. What would you say the verdict is on there? Because we need to do a verdict. It's really good, really fun, but it's totally bananas. It's it's off it's off the scale. Yeah. Uh, it's really really classic Agatha Christie though. It's got everything you could want, yeah. but, you know, because it's got a country house and a traditional setting, but it's just wacky <clears throat> crimes and, like... Yeah. You know what? For the Christmas Poirot, I think it's 10 out of 10. It's, it, yeah. It's I, exactly I what it's... you want for a slightly lighter in tone and especially silly and fun Poirot it novel generates because a it's lot. the Christmas It's one. nice to read it with someone else reading it because it generates a lot of discussion as well. Yeah. It's very funny. Um, and I think it's nice that it doesn't go like, it's not just fully about Christmas. Um, yeah. It's got a bit of an alternative take on it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely, it's def- it might be even my favourite murder in Agatha Christie because mm-hmm. it's, it's just so silly. Yeah, it is good. Yeah. I th- that's my review. I, t- I think it's, it, for the Christmas Poirot, I, I don't know you what more you wrong. could possibly want. Yeah, please read it. Yeah, Enjoy. and also watch it because the adaptation. And, and also great. watch it because yeah, you can't beat that. It's one of the best adaptations. Mm. Okay, right. Well, thank you so much for listening. It really has been a Christmas. A Christmas treat. delight. A Christmas delight. Yes, a Christmas present, if you will. Yes, a Christmas from us gift. to you. Yes, have fun. Have a very um, mysterious Christmas. Yes. And we'll be back with another story, another podcast about another story. In 2023. In the crime fiction casebook podcast the episode was written produced and researched by bridget coulter and james Wilson. the theme music was also composed performed and recorded by bridget coulter and james wilson please give me a follow at crime fiction casebook on instagram thanks again for listening and we hope you join us next time goodbye